0: Hey folks, tune in and let's bite the talk with us, the podcast crew from the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, also known as GAIN. I am Sharada Keats. Hi, I'm Munia Valdez.
1: And I am Grace Tuo, and we will be your hosts.
0: Welcome to today's episode for International Women's Day called When Women Choose to Challenge. We're very lucky to have a very special guest today, Catherine Bertini. Catherine Bertini is an accomplished leader in international organization reform and a powerful advocate for women and girls, including highlighting and supporting the roles of women and girls in influencing change. She has a very distinguished career and has worked in the United States and around the world. She's the 2003 World Food Prize Laureate and recipient of many other awards. She was the Executive Director of the United Nations World Food Programme from 1992 to 2002. She served as the UN Undersecretary for Management from 2003 to 2005. Currently, she is a Distinguished Fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the Chair of the Board of GAIN. She has also been named a Champion of the 2021 United Nations Food Systems Summit. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining
1: me today. Well, thank you for your invitation, Sharada. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So I've just given a very brief little snapshot there, some highlights from your history. But can we go back to your earlier history to set the scene on our topic for this podcast about women and gender equality and women in leadership positions? Can you think of any important formative moments in your childhood or youth when you became aware that our world is not equal and that girls and boys are treated differently?
1: Yes, I grew up the oldest of four in a working class household of hardworking parents. My father taught me a lot of things. He taught, he had me read the classics. He taught me about politics. He taught me games and he taught me how to play chess. I ran home from school one day telling him I beat the little boy down the street seven times in a row and he laughed. He congratulated me and then he said, well, one thing I haven't taught you yet is, Sometimes you have to let the boys win, so I was horrified. I don't have to let boys win. I'm just it's their problem if they're not as good as I am. But he explained why that um, they might not like it if I won I, all the time. And I said, "Well, that's too bad." But that was an important working lesson for me.
0: That's I can imagine that. That's a great story. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's a tough thing for a um, a little girl to um, to hear from her dad. So. Um, What comes to mind for you when you think of fighting for gender equality other than thrashing the boys at chess? Can you choose (laughs) just one other highlight from your 40 years of experience? So maybe a memorable event or a moment when you personally engaged in fighting for gender equality?
1: Oh, well, I've done it so many times that it's hard to pinpoint one, but I'll tell you that uh, is for earlier in one's career, I found not only for me, but for other young women that I talked to even today, one has to fight a lot more than later on. Once you get to a certain level, and I don't mean this above, above the glass ceiling thing because I think the glass ceiling is temporary and mobile, but um, but once you get to a certain level, you don't have to fight as much. But still, I remember being at the UN as an undersecretary general level, I was head of the World Food Program. There was a woman head of UNICEF and a woman head of UNFPA. And there were four of us, the three of us plus one man who ran UNDP, who were principals in what a group Kofi Annan had created called the UN Development Group. And since the three of us were not UNDP, we were always giving UNDP strong advice about changing certain policies that they had. And uh, the head of UNDP went around telling people that he was being picked on by the women and, and poor me, I have to deal with all of these women all the time. And uh, I went right back at him after hearing this from way too many people uh, and said, you, this is inappropriate behavior at any level, but certainly at the top levels of the UN, there's a legitimate difference between the UNDP and the non-UNDP agencies, and for you to make this a gender issue demeans you and demeans the whole thing. So I didn't hear that he did it much more, but like I said, even at that level, once in a while, you have to slap back. <laughs> wise words. Um,
0: so speaking of leadership, you've mentioned there one of your um, one of your leadership positions and you've held many in your career. So how do you say that your experience of women's struggles influences your particular style of leadership?
1: Uh, they say that women listen more. I hope that that's true. And they say that women have to work harder. I know that that's true. Um, and they say that women have to rise above certain issues. And I know that that's true also, certain fake issues. Uh, for instance, the um, as, as women progress, sometimes even at any level, somebody who doesn't like her, they'll criticize her for things that have nothing to do with her job or make things up, make things up about her personal life, make things up about uh, what she looks like or what she wears or where she lives or who she hangs out with, and much less than they would do with a man. I mean, for a man, these things are just given, but for women, you have to... A woman you have to struggle sometimes and and fight through it and th- that happens on every level so
0: it's clear that you've been a trailblazer in many areas where women are underrepresented so you were the first woman executive director for the wfp and you were the second woman, only the second woman to win the world food prize the laureates of this prize continue to be more often than not men rather than women Do you think that progress in terms of women being represented at those at those higher levels, at those leadership
1: levels? We've been very slow. We, the systems, the process, the powers that be have been very slow. Even on the World Food Prize, I'm so proud to have won it and I won it in 2003, as you said. But still, when women, all the other women who have won it before and after have won it in teams of two or three or four people winning the prize that year. So the only time it was given to one woman was to me. And that is almost tragic that there have not been a lot more women who have been considered for a prize at that level. And if you look around at government, at, uh, at the big corporations, and at so many other places at senior levels, we still see that it's a struggle to remember women. If we remembered women, all the women who have done wonderful things, then we could certainly honor them and hire them and promote them and and have the benefit of their leadership. But we don't often think about that.
0: Yeah. So you think that there's definitely, you know, there's women there who are deserving of these prizes and they're just not winning them rather than, you know, there haven't been opportunities for women to stand out enough to, you know, be chosen for those prizes. So it really is a a kind of blindness of the of the um, groups awarding them rather than a lack of talent or um, ability on the on the part of women.
1: Sure, but I'm going to take your thought a step further away from the prizes and say there's a blindness about the role women all around the world everywhere. That's one of the issues we found at the World Food Programme when we decided that our mission was to end hunger. And if that was our mission, we had to partner with the women because they were the cooks, they were the food gatherers and growers and, and marketers. And they were the people that we had to, to work with if we were going to have any sense of effort of success in ending hunger. But where are they? They're not the mayors, they're not the prefects, they're not the, the heads of the local government. Once in a great while they're the heads of the local community group. And, and so we had to invent ways so we could hear the voices of women because you can't just decide what somebody else wants and give it to them and ask them to be useful and grateful, but you have to have input from them. So, so often we don't listen to the voices of women or we don't see women. I wrote an article a couple of years ago called "Invisible Women," and that's what I think women are all so often.
0: Well, that leads really nicely into my uh, my next question for you, which is about um, about being a champion for better food systems and better food and nutrition security. Um, there's a really strong link to to women and and malnutrition and women and inequality and um, some of our listeners won't be so familiar with these links. So can you tell us a bit more about how gender inequality in particular fuels malnutrition in its various forms?
1: Women are the cooks. They have to have access to the food. They're not always the major breadwinner in the family, although they could be uh, and sometimes are. But If if cash comes into a household and the man has control over it, he's much more likely to use it on things of his own, not necessarily on the family. But if a woman has control over assets that come into the household cash, then she's more likely to use it on the family. So, And she's the cook. So first and foremost, having assets slash pay slash uh, other support go to women is a big help because it's going to help the family. Second when women are educated, their families are better off. Why? They know more about what are the right things to cook. They know more about what are the right things to grow. They're more productive farmers. They uh, are, are less likely to, to have serious health issues because they know when to have their children checked when they're ill. Uh, there's uh, lower infant mortality. There's lower maternal mortality with educated women, which means that girls' education is critically important in a household. And then women themselves, women as human beings, need nutrition at certain times in their life. They need it when they're pregnant, for instance, and when they're breastfeeding, because they need to be able to grow a fetus that ultimately becomes a child that is a, it has a good chance in life. And there are, Roger Thoreau has written a book about the first thousand days, and there's a movement for thousand days talking about that time between, between conception and the age two of a child being the most important time for having adequate nutrition because that's when their cells are growing, their body cells, their brain cells. So everywhere along the way, if we care about adequate nutrition, we must see women. They can't be invisible. We must hear women and we must support women.
0: So some of the things you mentioned in that answer there around women spending more on nutritious food and women being in charge of cooking in households, Made me think of um, the way that women's equality is sometimes seen as instrumental in achieving all of the other SDGs. There are, you know, there are well-documented feedbacks and interlinkages across the different SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. But there's also sort of some groups of feminists who say that there's been an awful lot of emphasis on empowering women so that they can deliver on other goals. So let's put money in women's hands because then they'll spend it on educating their children. They'll buy nutritious food, et cetera, rather than um, let's pay lots of attention to empowering women because they're 50% of the population. And from a human rights perspective, we would hope that women can have the same rights and opportunities as, as men, regardless of their impact on the rest of society. And I wanted to ask you, if you think this instrumentalization of women question is a real divide that affects the way that we think about programming in development, or would you say it's more of a philosophical issue or, or something else? What are your reflections on this
1: idea? Both concepts are right. It's just a question of who's, who's the speaker and who wants to emphasize what but I'll tell you the perspective that I come from, it's not everybody's, but it is mine. I want to build as big a possible crowd of supporters around the world to ultimately support opportunities for women. Why? Because when women have those opportunities, they can soar. And uh, and when they soar, the whole community soars. So if if the best way to do that, with all respect to women, is to bring others and to say the reason for doing it, which is totally true and legitimate, is to bring others along to make lives better for children and communities and so forth, then great. And if the best way to do that is to say, well, it's a human rights issue, then great. Thank
0: you, Catherine. So you're also um, a member of the UN Food Systems Summit Champions Network. And this is um, some, uh, a group of, uh, of people who are supporting the United Nations Food Systems Summit, um, which is expected to be, take place in September this year, alongside Anga, um, they announced that youth and women and Indigenous peoples leaders are among the champions for this for this network, who are helping to drive forward progress towards the summit. So I wanted to ask you, what is it like being a, being a member of this champions network, and what what do you expect? from the summit in terms of inclusiveness, in terms of um, women's voices being heard and the voices of these other marginalized groups?
1: Well, there are a lot of champions of the food system, including in every community. Uh, I live in a small village in in a rural community in the United States, and the people involved in food systems here to try to ensure 48,000 people have adequate food are champions just as much as somebody who's involved on the global level. And there need to be champions all throughout the world on food systems and listening to people and helping to make the systems better. But I'm honored to be a, a, a champion for the Food Systems Summit on a global scale as well as a national scale. My hope is that of the many things that are agreed to by the summit and hopefully put into place, that one of them is a breakdown between the, the silos, to use a farm term, of the agriculture world and the health world as it relates to adequate nutrition. I believe that both agriculture policymakers and healthcare policymakers think that when they bother to think about nutrition, they think it belongs under their, in their silo. But they don't think about it very often. They don't teach it well in medical schools. They don't make it a priority for doctors. They don't, they don't really reinforce it with farmers unless it has a very, very specific uh, uh, part of their, of their own marketing uh, of their, their own crops. And it must be thought about throughout both systems. And we've seen now, for instance, in the devastation of COVID, that some of the people that are more vulnerable are people who have pre-existing conditions. And a lot of those pre-existing conditions were such were, were created because they didn't have the right kind of nutrition much earlier on in their lives, or they don't have the right kind of medical care now or earlier in their lives. So if ever there was an advertisement for us to pay attention, knock us over the head with it, please, the world is saying, is doing, to pay attention to adequate nutrition, it's now... And it's got to be both in the health pers- health sector and in the agriculture sector. Um, so
0: I wanted to move on to ask a little bit about International Women's Day theme, which is uh, choosing to challenge. So can you tell us about a time, you know, maybe when you've tried to challenge some of these um some of these uh, silos or how they relate to gender inequality. Can you tell us about a time when you've challenged gender inequality in your personal or professional life? And what advice would you give to young women seeking to to challenge as well?
1: I gave a speech not too long ago called Challenging the Status Quo. And I felt like that's because when I reflected on some of my successes in my career, that's a lot of what I thought I was doing, challenging the status quo. That doesn't mean I was marching against it, but I was I was joining the system, but doing so in order to try to change from within the system. And that's how I believed I've had success. And that's part of my advice, although although everybody has to find their own space and and their own way of being effective. I remember years ago having a big discussion with a colleague in college and he was marching in the streets against the Vietnam War. And he was trying to get me to march in the streets and to give up being involved in politics. And I said, you know, we both have the same goal. We both want better, more responsive government. We both don't want to have war. But I'm going to go through the system to get something done. And he said, oh, you'll you'll never make it that way because you'll be helping all these terrible people in the system. And then you'll go off and get married and have kids. And then you'll never be in a position where you'll be able to make an impact. That's kind of a sexist statement as it was anyway, but. I said, no, you know what, you're wrong. Uh, I'm going to be in the system and I might marry, I might have children, but I ultimately will be in a position where I've been able to make a difference. So the first time I got a big award for some of the work I did, I, I, I thanked that guy who uh, helped uh, challenge me to to continue or at least help, helped me to frame what I was doing. So yes, have if I, if I seen the problematic issues? Absolutely, for, for instance, when I was at Health and Human Services in the U.S. government, we realized that 90% of the people that we were serving through uh, essentially a a cash assistance program were uh, who were heads of households were women. So we added programs that would be especially helpful, we thought, for women, like, for instance, having government subsidy for going to community college or for learning a skill. So uh, since then, I've had opportunity not only to write about girls in rural economies, about invisible women, but also uh, also about leadership. But there's a book that Melinda Gates wrote, to published two years ago, called A Moment of Lift. And I was I was so I was so touched and proud when she included me in her chapter on agriculture, as having helped convince Bill Gates that. It's important to pay attention to the roles of women in agriculture. So I feel like I've had an impact both directly on programs and indirectly through influencing others.
0: What a great story about the book. I do want to ask you um, later on about some, you know, some of your recommendations for who you're reading and who are the cooks and chefs and stuff that you're following. But I wanted to go back to um, to something you mentioned um earlier where you talked about this friend who inspired you through well he inspired you through his disbelief i suppose but can you tell me about any of your kind of mentors or or leaders in your life who inspired you for more positive uh,
1: reasons when i was maybe eight years old my grandmother gave me a book called elizabeth blackwell md the first woman doctor well she was the first woman doctor in the u.s in the uh, mid-19th century and the story was about her struggle, how she wanted to go to medical school, and there, that was not done, and how she finally persisted and made it. And that told me at a very early age that sometimes life is tough for women, but you have to persist. And if you do, you can get where you want to go. So that was hugely important for me. Same grandmother also would, when we'd see a, a very poor person or destitute person on television or elsewhere, she, she would say, and i think it was from a british philosopher but she would say there but for the grace of god go i so when i've worked on social welfare programs either in the us government or or in the un i've always had that in my mind what if that was me what if that syrian woman with with her children who's cowering in that house doesn't know how to leave or how to get food what if that was me what would i what would i need what would i do what would i want who could i talk to and i I've always tried to put myself in the, in the place of those who I'm supposed to be helping, but I've also tried to find a way to listen to those who I'm supposed to be helping. So other people who have been tremendous role models have been individuals who I've met through, through my life who've, who also have uh, fought tough battles uh, in their careers and have been successful against difficult odds and who uh, have accomplished a lot of really important things. And I keep pictures of women at work around my house to remind me of the roles of women and the tough jobs of women.
0: Well, those are some lovely words and a lovely um, kind of thought to end on, I think maybe. Um, If there's anything else on, you know, Women who inspire you in different areas—we'd love to hear about it. Maybe your your recommendations for women in food systems. Who are you? Who are you reading now? And uh, whose recipes do you love? Are there any um, any last uh, points you'd like to share on that?
1: I'm not much of a cook, so I'm not going to be able to give you many recipes. Um, I made lentil soup the other day, which which was described as lentil stew. Um, Oh, it's and- so
0: tough with lentils to get that water ratio <laughs> right no i sympathize i often make soup stews
1: oh yeah right so so um uh, so no recipes aren't gonna they're not gonna come from me and um, <laughs> um i oh um actually the book that's currently on my bedside table is not a, a, a woman book but it's about a, it includes stories of a strong woman and that's trevor noah's book um born a crime and um uh the um uh the books i like to read totally for for pleasure also involve a strong women but they're totally fictional and they're really nice and those are the women's detective agency the uh, um, oh
0: yes, I think, or, the, uh, is that Alexander McCall Smith?
1: Yes, uh, yes, the Alexander McCall Smith, the number one ladies detective agency.
0: That's right, I've heard a lot of good things about those, so you
1: recommend those, to you? Oh yeah, they're just fun, it's just fun. Um, yeah. I, she goes through a lot of challenges, but she's, um, uh, she's, she's remarkable how she gets around it. And it's amazing <clears throat> that a man has written that in, is, it so well in a, in, a, in a woman's voice, it's really good.
0: Well, thank you, Catherine, so much for, you know, your, your many wise words today and sharing all your experiences from, you know, from the strong words that your father told you when you were young through your, um, your many uh, career ups and downs, mostly ups. And um, yes, I just uh, thank you very much for for joining us today. And we really, you know, look forward to, um, to celebrating um, International Women's Day with you.
1: Thank you very much. And I do want to add that my my father was my Uh, most important teacher, um, supporter, promoter, and uh, couldn't be here without him.
0: All right, everyone, eat healthy, stay safe, and wear a mask.